Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. In the last 10 to 20 years, psychiatry has been able, for the first time in its history, to take a look into the brain's actual activity under different states and stresses. This is called neuroimaging. One recent and exciting focus has been on neuroimaging findings in schizophrenia. Dr. Daniel Wolf is a psychiatrist at the University of Pennsylvania who has been doing this type of research. Dr. Wolf, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Let's begin with a simple question. Exactly what is neuroimaging? Give us a little background, please. Well, it does depend on what kind of neuroimaging you're talking about. There you know, is structural neuroimaging that's just focused on looking at the size and shape of areas of the brain, but functional neuroimaging, which I think is especially exciting and dynamic area now, there are, again, different modalities there. So the one that I use primarily is called functional MRI or magnetic resonance imaging. And essentially what it does is it takes a movie over time, really, of the activity across the entire brain. So you can see which parts of the brain are active at any particular moment in time as people are doing specific tasks thinking certain things. There are other kinds of functional imaging modalities like positron emission tomography, which actually can be more molecularly attuned, able to pick up receptor levels, neurotransmitter levels, and things that at this point functional MRI can't do. So there's sort of a range of different neuroimaging techniques, and they each have their sort of role to play, and they're being combined actually together more and more in in very powerful ways. And these are the pretty pictures that people see of all the different colors that seem to be reflecting some activity in the brain? Exactly. I think the most common images people see of sort of the bright red blobs in the brain uh, when people are doing things, those are usually functional MRI images, yes, and they take the data and, and convert it into these very striking images that show particular regions active as People perform very, sometimes very specific cognitive or even emotional functions, and you can pinpoint with not perfect precision, but with with some precision, what parts of the brain are necessary or involved in those functions. So someone who is being used as a research subject is being put into the machine and then given a task to do or given something to think about. Is that what happens? Exactly. That's typically what's done there. You you can study subjects just lying and relaxing, and that's actually becoming a, a more common technique as well. But the traditional functional MRI technique has been to take a psychological task that you're interested in because you think it will either probe a particular symptom of illness or in healthy people probe a particular psychological function. And by having people do variants of that task, you can isolate the function of the brain regions that are essential for that task rather than, say, a closely related task that doesn't involve the particular psychological function you're interested in studying. Interesting. Is it possible to see patterns that are different if a person is crying or laughing or having good memories or bad memories, maybe feeling cold, feeling uncomfortable, not comfortable, that type of thing? You can. It becomes harder when you actually, one of the limitations of functional MRI is people have to remain still to get good pictures. So there are limits in that sense of what you can study people doing, but they have indeed done what's called mood induction, where they ask people to remember personal situations which were strongly reminiscent of a sad time for them or a time where they're very angry. And you can certainly identify regions of the brain that are involved in emotion generation. And if you are careful about it, you can distinguish which parts of the brain are more active, say, for example, for anger or fear than for 
or happiness or sadness. The more subtle the distinction you're trying to make, the more challenging it is to design the experiment to pick up that distinction, but, it's, but it is possible. The question that begs to be asked is how close are we to being able to use these images in a diagnostic way to get a better sense of what's going on in the brain and ultimately to hopefully be able to predict from scans what a person may face in the future? Right. Well, that that is, in you know, for my field, sort of the holy grail is to use the neuroimaging techniques to improve what we can do as psychiatrists in terms of diagnosis, in terms of prognosis. You know, there have been many, many functional imaging studies already in schizophrenia, and we certainly observe abnormalities in brain function, but we are not to the point where we can use functional imaging yet to diagnose schizophrenia. And I think part of the challenge is that we don't have a gold standard. There's no you know, for other fields like Alzheimer's disease or medical fields where there's a clear diagnostic test that you can use as a gold standard and improve your technology, we have the clinical diagnosis is the gold standard. So there's sort of a bootstrapping where you have to try to continually improve the test without knowing for sure that you're even studying exactly the same thing. You know, there may be different kinds of schizophrenia with different kinds of brain patterns. So it's, it's not an easy process. But I think with the key advantage of neuroimaging is that it's not is that you can start to tie these psychological processes to specific brain regions, specific neural circuits, and you can start to study things because you can see into someone's brain that are impossible to access any other way, that you can't get accurate subjective reports from patients, but you can see their brains functioning, and you can start to tie specific symptom clusters, psychotic symptoms like hallucinations and delusions, negative symptoms, emotional deficits and cognitive deficits to dysfunction in in specific brain circuits. You know, one example with hallucinations is, although it's not terribly surprising, it was neuroimaging that showed that actually the auditory cortex that hears things is active when people have an auditory hallucination. And that's sort of a striking proof of principle of the technology but it means that we can go then learn things that we don't yet know the answer to and don't even suspect, perhaps. This is opening up a door into aspects of these diseases that, well, frankly, we never knew how to open this door before. It's fascinating. Absolutely. I mean, the ability to see the brain in action and develop quantitative measures of brain function in living human beings is just an amazing leap forward in technology. I think its potential has not been, you know, right now we still don't use it as a clinical tool, but I think that is around the corner as the technology develops. And I think think in some ways the most exciting potential is in prediction in a way that I think actually very few psychiatrists think about psychiatry as a field is almost entirely devoted to treating illnesses after they develop Correct. because we can't diagnose them other than by symptomatic syndromes. And that's different, for example, with a medical doctor who diagnoses someone with high blood pressure. If you didn't have a way to measure blood pressure, you would never know the person was ill. They may be completely asymptomatic. And in fact, the only sort of downside of the high blood pressure is that it increases your risk for heart attacks, strokes, very bad things down the line. So the incredible potential of neuroimaging is is that it 
can potentially turn psychiatry into a field that can identify abnormalities before they become diseases. Early detection and, and developing preventative psychiatry, essentially, which more or less doesn't exist at this point. This is where all this new science becomes intriguing. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had the wherewithal, the skills, to take someone with a history of schizophrenia or some other psychiatric problem and scan them and say, you are at risk, and that because we knew there was a risk, then we could intervene earlier and reduce the intensity of the disease or maybe even block it entirely? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Exactly. And I think, you know, I don't know everyone would like to have that news, but if we, we don't even have the capacity to test medications that might prevent it, if we lack the ability to figure out who is at sufficiently high risk in order to do those studies. And there may be medications that could prevent the development. They might have side effects. Would we give them to everybody who had you know, a few percent chance based on their family history of developing schizophrenia? Probably not, but if we could use neuroimaging to identify people who had a 50, 60, 70% chance of developing schizophrenia, then it would become very feasible to start to test new medications for their ability to reduce the risk of developing schizophrenia. This is also intriguing. For those of us who have been in the field for any number of years, the mere fact that we can actually see the brain function in different ways has an attraction and a scientific curiosity and a scientific comfort. But I want to switch to what you are doing. You are studying one particular aspect of schizophrenia. Could you tell us what it is, what you're doing, and what drew you to that particular aspect? Sure. So my focus is on what are called the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. And those are distinguished. The positive symptoms of schizophrenia are what people usually associate the sort of dramatic hallucinations, delusions, paranoia uh, that people often associate with the illness. Um, negative symptoms are basically a reduction in emotional and social, uh, social abilities. Um, and while they're less dramatic, in recent years it's been shown in, in a number of research studies that actually in terms of functional disability that these negative symptoms really have an incredibly strong impact on long-term functional outcomes. And by that you mean go to school, have a job, have a normal social life, enjoy social activities? It, exactly. You know, Freud said love and work, I think, and those are exactly. So social, occupational function, relationships with other people, all of those depend critically on these emotional abilities, social abilities, communication abilities, and also cognitive function. And so there's a growing sort of focus in the field. Traditionally, people have been focused on these med medications, antipsychotics, trying to reduce the hallucinations and delusions. And those are the things that sort of get people in the most acute trouble, put them in the hospital. But there are medications that tend to work for those for most people. But for the negative symptoms and the cognitive symptoms, which really have a profound effect on long-term function, how well people can integrate into the world, the treatments we have essentially don't work for those symptoms. And we also know next to nothing about their neurobiology. What are the brain circuits involved? What are the neurotransmitters involved? My own background, I did graduate work studying drug addiction in rats. So the way I sort of have tied these things together when I became interested in studying schizophrenia and psychosis and these negative symptoms is that I brought the sort of prior 
experience I had studying reward learning and dopaminergic reward systems in the brain. And my goal has been to try to utilize that experience and that knowledge to bring kind of a new insight, a new way of looking at some of the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. In particular, some of the negative symptoms include a reduction in sort of a pleasure capacity, which is called anhedonia, or a reduction in motivation, which people call abolition, a reduction in social function, asociality. And traditionally, negative symptoms have been sort of lumped together and attributed to sort of prefrontal lobe dysfunction by analogy with people who've had traumatic brain injuries in the prefrontal lobes and become sort of apathetic. But what my own research with neuroimaging has shown, and it's been also seen independently by other groups, is that higher levels of negative symptoms are associated with lower function in reward brain regions. So in a manner, you can almost photograph this, so to speak. Yes. I mean, it's not technically a photograph, but essentially, yes, you can watch the brain in action. And what I've shown is that when patients with schizophrenia are shown novel stimuli that they're not expecting. That is known to activate dopamine reward systems in the brain, an area called the ventral striatum that is basically activated by novel or rewarding stimuli events. That happens in schizophrenia patients too. But in schizophrenia patients with higher levels of negative symptoms, that activation is much reduced. And there's another group in Germany that has shown the same thing using monetary rewards in the exact same brain region that these patients with the higher levels of negative symptoms have a reduced activity in this important reward region in the brain. And it suggests that patients are having an abnormal brain response to things that would otherwise be rewarding, novel, stimulating, and lead them to sort of engage with the world. And instead, it seems that those events are not being converted in a normal way into sort of future motivation, into motivation and memory of the experience in a way that would drive them to continue doing those things. Once again, it's so intriguing to hear that now you can see what we have always suspected. All of us in clinical practice have talked to people who were schizophrenic, and when the hallucinations began to reduce and things appeared to be getting better in so many ways, they still weren't able to make that last jump, make that last leap. Something seemed to be holding them back, and now you can actually see it with a scan. Fascinating. Exactly. And I I came with the hypothesis, but it it wouldn't have been because most of the hypothesis, the sort of focus on dopamine and schizophrenia is that there's, it's a hyperfunctional dopamine system. The notion that some patients with schizophrenia might actually have reduced function in this brain region would have been, I think, hard for many people to accept. But when you see the brain imaging results and you see this part of the brain is not activating normally in patients with these negative symptoms, it is very persuasive and it opens up a whole new way of sort of theorizing about negative symptoms as essentially a consequence of abnormal reinforcement learning where rewards are not processed abnormally and instead people become more focused on sort of avoiding negative events rather than seeking positive events. And there's other uh, imaging data from our broader research group showing that the amygdala, which is sort of a threat-sensitive, a danger-sensitive area of the brain, can be hyperactive in patients with negative symptoms, in patients with schizophrenia, especially those with high levels of negative symptoms. So putting it together, it suggests a phenomena where those with negative symptoms have a excessive sensitivity to negative events 
and they reduce sensitivity in positive to positive events. And therefore, over time, they process their life experience abnormally in a way that leads them to become progressively more avoidant and more restricted in what they're sort of interested and willing to do. And so if we go back and use a lot of the first generation or the older antipsychotic medications, they block dopamine. And a lot of times, all of us, again, in practice, would see that people got better insofar as the hallucinations were concerned, but their moods didn't. Their moods sometimes even got worse. Absolutely. And I I think, although it's a a bit better these days because we use the newer generation medications have less of those side effects and we don't use high doses of the older medications when we do use them. But to some extent, we haven't actually gotten out of that trap. All existing antipsychotics still block dopamine function. And it may well be that as as long as we're focused on just using medications that have this antipsychotic effect that reduce the hallucinations and delusions and have this dopamine blocking mechanism that we're never going to be able to dramatically improve the negative symptoms. We really need to focus on them specifically and find mechanisms with medications with new mechanisms of action that sort of break out of that box in order to be able to address those symptoms, I think. The use of neuroimaging may actually take us past just the where that these symptoms come from, but perhaps someday even to the how or the why. It's a very exciting new development in psychiatry, and we are so appreciative of all that we can learn about it. The findings related to the negative symptoms of schizophrenia are quite intriguing. Dr. Daniel Wolf is a psychiatrist at the University of Pennsylvania, and we thank you so much for bringing this interesting topic to us. It's something to clearly have to watch as it develops over the next couple years. Thank you. Thank you very much. Wonderful to talk with you. Bye-bye.